admired for their ability to carry out special missions of the armed forces successfully without leaving any of their comrades behind. Um, this elite group of special forces goes through extensive training and retraining. Author Lee Ann Obringer uh, says SEAL training is brutal. It takes over 30 months to train a Navy SEAL to the point where he's ready for deployment. The SEALs that emerge are ready to handle pretty much any task that could be called to perform, including diving, combat swimming, navigation, demolitions, weapons, and parachuting. The training pushes them to the limit, both physically and mentally. They have to uh, be adept at swimming. They uh, are tested for running speed, strength, teamwork. Uh, they have to survive in the water with their hands and feet tied. Um, they undergo cold water surf torture. They're the famous hell week where they have to follow commands under stress with only five or four hours of sleep the whole five days. And all this training that they go through, it weeds out those that are, are not qualified and it transforms the others into the experts they need to be for their demanding missions. Being a Navy SEAL involves really being transformed by the elite training in order to perform the tasks. Well, our passage today teaches us that we, as Christ's ambassadors, are transformed by Christ himself for the task and the role he calls us to, to do his work and represent him in the world. It's all by grace. It's different than what the seals go through. It's all by grace. It's his work in us. Um, but he does indeed transform us and create us to be his ambassadors. So I want to dig into this text and learn about this. I want to learn how his love transforms us. I want to learn how we're made into, being, uh, into new creations. And I want us to learn how we're given a message and a ministry by Christ Himself. It all comes from Him. It's also that we can be His ambassadors. So let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word. Lord, we thank You that You work in our lives in such a way to equip us, to transform us, to be Your ambassadors. Lord, we are not strong in and of ourselves, but You are good and mighty and active. And I pray, Lord God, that I could do a job, a good job today of clearly explaining these truths. And I pray through it, Lord, You'd teach us about these truths and we could ground ourselves and live out of these truths of this uh, transforming work You do in us to make us Your ambassadors. So help us to understand Your Word, to hear from You, and Holy Spirit, come and dwell with us, that we might be transformed by your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God's Word from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11-21. So I want to just work through this paragraph, this section of Scripture, looking at the various points. First point being that Christ's ambassadors are controlled by Christ's love. Paul starts in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. And So when you see a word like therefore, you want to know what it's there for. And if you look earlier, he's been talking about this, uh, this mode of ministry that he lives in and his team lives in. And, and it's a different mode than the world. It's a different mode than what others are doing. It's a different mode than what the Corinthians are experiencing from other leaders. And he wants them to understand his mode. And part of that mode is living in light of God's grace and glory and God's uh, reign over all things. And living in light of the fact that, that God is the reference point. When we understand God is the reference point, it shifts how we do life. It shifts how we do ministry. And so Paul is talking about this, the, the difference of how he and his team ministers in contrast to some other leaders in Corinth that are, that are causing trouble. And so we've been seeing this in this whole letter, right? That, that there's this different MO. There's this mode where we recognize that we're weak. We are incapable in and of ourselves. And yet God's grace is at work in us and through us, even in our weakness. And even our weakness highlights the, the, the wonder of His glory and grace. And so there's this mode of, of living uh, as those that are weak but have a great glory and strength within us. Christ Himself in this wonderful message of the Gospel. That's in contrast to the MO of the other people who are portraying uh, that leaders and even Christians have to be omnicompetent and charismatic and, and superhero-like in their leadership and in their lives. And so he counters this. And he wants them to know that, that God is the reference point. We live in light of who God is and we're honest with who we are in light of that. And so we live before God who is the author and sustainer of all life, who is the ultimate just judge. So therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and then he continues, we persuade others and we do these things. Knowing the fear of the Lord. We live in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we're terribly afraid that He's just going to capriciously like lash out and hurt us. That's not what the fear of the Lord means in Scripture. The fear of the Lord means it's reverence and respect for God. It's a realization that He's the Creator and Sustainer of all, and we answer to Him. He's the owner of all that we see. He's made us, and He's good. And we live life in reference to Him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And so, knowing the fear of the Lord, it, it, it alters how Paul does ministry. And it should alter our lives as well when we understand the fear of the Lord. It, it causes Paul, and, and, and by example, it calls us as well to so live that, that we're really seeking to present who Jesus is, not who we are. 
I think when we understand the fear of the Lord and we understand who we are in light of that, we, we don't try to create a, a false persona. We don't try to project that we have it all together. We don't create a ministry that's full of bells and whistles and self-focus. We don't compromise the message. We seek to be faithful to the message. We seek to live in light of who God is and, and His grace in our lives and so we can be honest and straightforward. And we can, we can communicate from a sincere heart. That's what Paul's talking about. Even though we're weak, and even though in and of ourselves we may not have much to offer people, because of the fear of the Lord, because of who He is, and because of His grace and activity in our lives, we, we do things differently. And so Paul talks about that, and, and, and he's trying to help them understand, like, guys, this is how we live, and we hope, we hope it makes sense to you, he says in verse 11. We're not commending ourselves, giving you cause to boast about us, that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. So we, got, we want you guys to, to see this and get this and no longer be so impressed with those who look good on the outside, but don't live honestly and straightforwardly in this way. He even goes on to say, um, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. The word beside ourselves could also mean uh, out of our minds or crazy. And so Paul's talking about probably their opinion, probably some of the things they've been saying about Paul and how he does ministry and what he's doing. He's just crazy. He's out of his mind. And Paul says, well, if you want to call what we're doing being out of our minds, then go ahead. Because we're doing this for God. And we're doing it for you. We're not here to impress. We're not here to, to win some following and be popular and successful. We live in the fear of the Lord. And we love you. And so we're going to be honest with our weaknesses. But we're going to present the strength and grace of God in our lives. He goes on to say, for the love of Christ controls us. Verse 14. This is what motivates us. This is what controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Some, some Bibles translate that word a little differently. Some use the word compel. For the love of Christ compels us. Or the love of Christ constrains us. The Greek word uh, is related, of course, to those English words. It, it's a word used for something that dominates you and defines your experience. It's actually used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of someone being overcome by a sickness. So it's the same word. And so the picture is it's, this is something that basically invades and infiltrates your whole being and affects your whole experience. That's the word. And so that's why they look for English words like compel and control and constrain. It's, it's maybe we could say it grips us. The love of Christ, Paul says, grips us. It saturates us. It controls us. So, so think of it that way. When you get the flu, hopefully you don't get the flu. Um, I get the shot every year and thank God I haven't had it for a little while. When you get it, you know how it is, right? You, it starts to affect your body and you start to feel just weak, right? That's usually the first thing. You feel weak, you're tired, then you start to get achy, and then uh, you know it's coming, right? You start to get a headache, um, then the other congestion comes, nausea, and if you get the flu, usually it, it incapacitates you if you have a, a bad version. You just have to lay in bed. I've, I've had bad, the bad flu before. That's why I get the shot every year now. Um, and so the flu constrains you. The flu controls you. The flu 
invades and infiltrates your life and it, and it determines your whole experience. And that's the word that Paul's using for the love of Christ. So it's a, obviously not like the flu. It's, it's a good flu. It's a good virus that takes over your life. The love of Christ comes in and affects you like a virus would. It invades and infiltrates your body. It changes you in a positive way, a substantial way. And, and when we get this love of Christ, it changes us. It frees us. It frees us from worry because we know He loves us and we're safe in Him. And we're not afraid. And He's in control of all things. And, and so we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry in the same way. It frees us from guilt knowing that we're reconciled. We're loved by Him. It frees us from self-focus. We can just stop thinking so much about ourselves. He loves us. Let Him love us and let us love others and not worry so much about ourselves. It frees us to be bold. To be unafraid to take the steps that God would want us to take. It empowers us to persevere, to hang on, to keep on loving, to, to keep on serving, to keep on believing, to keep on doing what we're called to do. And my prayer this morning is if you've served this week in VBS, I know you're tired. Um, VBS experiences, you come off of it, you're exhilarated and you're exhausted. My, praise, my prayer this morning is that God would refresh you in the, the wonder of His love and you'd find fresh energy even this morning. This love controls and constrains us. It gives us a willingness to, to sacrifice comfort and convenience to serve others. And, and I know there's a lot of people in this room who are infected by this love virus, this love of Christ virus. And I saw it last week with people serving 120 high-energy, needy kids to the point of utter exhaustion. So thank you guys for how you live it out. I'm so grateful to be part of a church that's been infected by this love virus. So grateful for those who are, are serving and have served overseas, giving up weeks and weeks in the summer, giving up comfort. Um, we have three people over, overseas right now serving um, who are regular members. Of course, we support others as well. And, and I know that, that they're all motivated by this love. Now, it's important to understand as Paul talks about this love, this isn't just a generic love. Um, certainly, Christ, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, he, he loves all of humanity. And, and there's a generic love for all of humanity. And it's a very deep and unfathomable love indeed. But there are specific contours in the passage that, that Paul brings out. So the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. So there's definition to this love. We've concluded something, and, and we're controlled because we've decided to understand these truths and, and conclude that these are truths and that these are true for us, and these are fundamental, basic, essential truths. And he says this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, so the details of this love are that one died for all. And he's going to later on in the end of this chapter get into the specifics of what went on in that death. Verse 21, he says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ dies for all. And in His death, the One who knew no sin, that being Jesus, who had never sinned and never known sin, never dabbled in sin, never 
committed sin, never enjoyed sin, always was repulsed, always refused, always chose to trust His Father and love His Father and to love others to the point of death, even death on the cross. So His obedience was complete and perfect. He knew no sin. He is God in the flesh. Perfect goodness. Only and always good in every way. Knew no sin. It says, for our sake, He, speaking of the Father, made Him, speaking of Jesus, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So on the cross, Jesus' death was in our place bearing our sins. And He knew our sins on the cross. He knew your sins on the cross. He knew what you know in your own experience of those sins and what you're aware of as you made decisions, whatever they might be, be they little picadillos type sins to the big ones and everything in between. He knew those sins on the cross. He knew what you did, why you did. He knew the sense of guilt and shame that you felt with that. Or maybe you didn't. He knew the sense of guilt and shame you ought to have felt with that. And as God in the flesh, He knew even more than you ever would or will know about your sin. He knew your sin on the cross. And, and, and the phrasing that Paul gives there is, is unique. There, there's, a, there's a sense where he, he, he became sin, though he had never sinned. He became sin as he bore our sins. He was acquainted with sin in, in a way that just is... is uh, impossible to understand because He's God in the flesh. And yet He knew your sin and the fullness of it. And He so identified with your sin that He took the full punishment and the holy justice of God was poured out on Jesus for your sins. He who knew no sin became sin. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. And then, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Him, in faith in Him, simple faith, simply turning away from our sin and ourselves, saying, Jesus, I believe You did this for me and I want this. Simple faith. That's what simple faith is. That's all it is. Now, there's a life that falls from that, but that's what He asks of us to respond and receive what He's done. That's the core of Christianity. And that's so important to get. There are other things that follow from that life, but that simple transaction of entrusting Him who did it all, simply receiving it, is the ground for everything else. And it's the, the essential aspect of this truth. And so, Jesus died on the cross bearing our sins. And as we trust in Him, we are counted righteous. It says so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So in this relationship with Jesus, our sin goes to Him. He bears our sin and His righteousness, His goodness is credited to us. And now, through faith in Him, through being joined with Him, when the, when the Father looks at us, He sees Jesus' righteousness. He looks at you and says, it's as if you had lived Jesus' life and done everything He did in His righteousness. That's the amazing truth of this. The amazing truth, the core of Christianity. And that's the love of Christ. That's how we get the love of Christ. That's, that's how we continue to grow in the love of Christ. So, right, Paul has said, we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. There's this reality when we trust in Christ and are joined to Him, we understand that He's died, but we also understand that we died with Him. 
We died to the old way of doing things. We died to a life of living under sin, living under guilt and shame, living under or in for sin. We are radically transformed. We actually die with Him. It's a mystery beyond full understanding, but we die with Him. He died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So we die with Him, and now we live for Him. That's the love of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. And saying basically, we've been changed by this love. We are now controlled. We are compelled. We are constrained. We are infected with this love virus. And that's why we do what we do. And that's why we do things the way we do them, is what he's saying to the Corinthians. He wants them to understand this and live in this. This is the love of Christ. And they are controlled. They are gripped by it. So, how about you? What controls you? What defines you? What are you constrained by? Everybody is motivated and constrained by something. There's something that propels you in life. There's something that grips you. You have a reason to do what you do. Everybody does. So what is it? What would others say when they look at your life? What would they say compels you, controls you? And it may be something that's relatively good. I don't mean to imply that it's not. But what I want you to hear is that most of all, God would want you to be compelled by the love of Christ. He would want you to be defined by the love of Christ. He would want you to live in the love of Christ and draw strength and life and identity from the love of Christ. And in that love, you'll, you'll be transformed. And in that love, you'll, you'll be and do things radically different. You're meant for this love and nothing else suffices for it besides the love of Christ. That's how he makes his ambassadors. Because they're controlled, compelled, constrained by the love of Christ. Second point, Christ's ambassadors are transformed by Christ's life. This love has a real effect. And so Paul says, from now on, therefore we regard no one, verse 16, according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. This love transforms how we think of other people. It transforms how we think of Christ. When we encounter Him and encounter this truth about Him and His death and resurrection for us, it changes how we think about people. And, and so we no longer regard people according to the flesh. So according to the flesh means just our flesh is our natural self, apart from God. And so we no longer regard others according to the flesh. We no longer regard Christ according to the flesh. Now remember, Paul's contrasting their ministry approach from the other leaders. And it's likely the other leaders are are regarding people according to the flesh, and the Corinthians are regarding people according to the flesh. Their reference point is not God's perspective, not the love of Christ, but something else. It's outward appearance. It's according to the flesh. So it's things like appearance, how good someone looks, how well they're dressed. Now, there's not, not necessarily anything wrong with these, but when we regard someone according to these things, that's when we go off. So things like social status, how popular someone is, how interesting they are, how smart they are, how rich they are, how strong they are. That's how our world does it. That's how our world evaluates people, right? Uh, it values them by how much they have these qualities and it denigrates them by how much they lack these qualities. And we make quick decisions about people based on those things, don't we? We look at them and right away, I know what they're like. Or I know how much they're worth. Uh, we do that even if we don't mean to at times. It, it just can be automatic. And, and how sad, but how common it is for us to evaluate people 
by these certain abilities and then treat others who lack these abilities as invisible or mere background. This is the way of the world and this is the way of the media. And this is the way of social media, right? The way I'm not speaking against social media per se, but, but we find ourselves drawn into that that is attractive in, in these other ways. And, and we don't always look more deeply. And Christ was seen this way. Paul's saying that at one point we regarded Christ this way. And actually Christ has lots of reasons to be discarded because of how He appears in terms of these different ways. Isaiah 53 tells us that there was nothing in His appearance to attract us to Him. Christ was a homely man. He was not a good-looking man. That's what it's saying. There's nothing about him. You wouldn't look at him and say, whoa, man, this is, you know, this is a male model material. No, this is like a plain or even an ugly guy. And it's not just his physical appearance. It's the fact that he was crucified on the cross. He was a nobody from a little backwards village in a nothing nation, really, in terms of the world. And not only that, but He went to the cross and was crucified. And, and nowadays we look at the cross and it's a symbol of, of Christianity and of Christ. But it's been transformed. In that day, the cross was a terrible thing. You would not even say the word cross in decent company. It was a swear. It's like the F word, basically. That's what it was like. Because it was so abhorrent to people for someone to be crucified. The people that were crucified were notorious criminals, the very lowest of the lows, the greatest losers in society, were crucified. So when Jesus, this plain-looking person from an obscure village, was crucified, it was basically there was nothing more He could do to, to make Himself despised and rejected. And what Paul is saying is we used to think of Him that way. But something changed. When we heard the good news and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we understood who He really is and what this all meant. It transformed us. And we no longer look at Jesus that way and we no longer look at people that way. We look at people with God's eyes. We look at Jesus with God's eyes. We look at the heart. We look at what really matters. We look at the character. We look at them in light of the love of Christ. That Christ has so loved us. God in the flesh has so loved us. How can we not love others regardless of what they, whether they have something to offer us or not? So there's a radically different way of looking at people. We're transformed. We're made new creations is what Paul gets into. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, and the new has come. When you, are, when you encounter this truth, you experience new life and you're changed there's a change that goes on now it may not show in every way right away but it is real this is truth paul's saying this is what we've concluded these things and all that follows the old has passed away behold the new has come the reality for the believer is you have been transformed by christ so point number one the love of christ changes us point two you've been transformed by christ you are a new creation for me this was a key verse actually in coming to faith in jesus because at the time um, i knew that i had messed up i knew that i had done a lot of bad things made some bad decisions and done a lot of bad decisions and i felt guilty and i felt ashamed and i was hopeless i thought there's no way out no matter where i go and what i do i'm still going to be a mess up and I, I just thought, is there any hope of forgiveness? Is there any hope of change? And someone shared this verse 
and, and another as well with it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I believe that truth at that moment and put my faith in Christ and experienced it. And I know we, we all tell our stories before knowing Jesus, and I've got plenty because I've been changed. I'm not perfect. I struggle. But there's a difference, and that's true for all of us. There's a difference in our lives as a result of this new life we have in Christ. We're new creations, and we look at things differently, and we live differently. It's who we are, and we need to understand that. We need to understand that our chief identity as Christians is not as sinners, but as saints. Yes, until we go to be with Jesus, sin hangs on and remains and we will struggle. But that is not our chief identity. Paul does not present it that way. The Bible doesn't present it that way. Our chief identity is as new creations formed in the image of Christ. Experiencing His life, changed by Him, having died with Him on the cross, and having been raised to new life with Him. That's who we are. And we need to see ourselves that way. If you are going to live according to truth, you need to live according to this truth, that you are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. I talked about some of these truths this past week in BBS, so I apologize for repeating illustrations, but you guys know the story of the frog and the princess? There's a frog who gets kissed by a princess, and the result is immediately transformed into a prince, and they get married and live happily ever after, right? You know that story? Well, let me... Imagine a sequel where the prince struggles because he remembers, I used to be a frog. And he has a crisis. He goes into a funk and he starts thinking, i got to act like a frog again. And so he returns to the swamp, starts jumping around in the mud, swimming, starts eating bugs, croaks and hops. But he's, he's a prince. But he's like, I'm a, I was a frog. I'm a frog. I mean, just that's my, I'm a frog. I'll never be anything more than a frog. I might as well just go back to the swamp. And, and, you come along as the prince's friend, what are you going to say? What are you doing? You're not a frog. Get out of the mud. Stop eating bugs. Live the new life. You're a prince. Shake out of it. Come and live in the castle. Enjoy the king's table. Be the prince we need you to be. Stop being a frog. You're not a frog. Don't identify yourself that way. That's what Paul's saying here. We're new creations. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a new creation. You're no longer a frog. You're a prince or princess of the King. And you're called to live this new life and be His ambassadors. That's the reality. Yes, even in your weakness, even in your struggles, there's a greater reality than all your struggles and your sins. And that's the new life of Christ in you. And that's what empowers and equips you. So how do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself this way? Do you think of yourself this way or do you think of yourself according to your failures? Do you evaluate yourself in terms of your sins? And again, we need to look, have an honest look at ourselves. I'm not saying don't do that. But is your chief evaluation, I'm a failure, I can never do this? Or is it as a new creation? How do you look at others who are Christians, particularly if they've put their faith in Jesus? Do you look at them this way? Do you have a picture? Do you see them with God's eyes? This is a new creation. And this friend of mine is one day going to be exactly like Jesus in every way. And so I'm going to treat them that way. I'm going to be for them. I'm going to believe God to work in their lives and I'm going to be part of God's working, His, 
his progressive work in their lives to make them more and more into the prince or princess that God calls them to be. We are new creations in Christ. Finally, Christ's ambassadors share Christ's message and ministry. Paul continues here in verse 18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Isn't this amazing? That, it, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of recon- reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. So Paul's saying that not only have we received this reconciliation through what Christ has done, but now we are given the ministry, and then, of course, here in, in verse 21 especially, the message of reconciliation. It's astounding. We've been given this message and this ministry of reconciliation. It's all from God. He's done this, and He calls us to bring this ministry and message to others. And there's no greater message. There's no greater message to know and to share with others. Uh, anyone here a Star Trek fan? All right, you've got a few. Yeah. Anyone like watch Star Trek back in the 80s? I know you have to be my age to, to have done that. Well, Star Trek number four, do you guys remember? Um, uh, they had to, it was 1986, they had to make a big tank to hold whales. Do you guys remember that? Um, and they needed transparent aluminum. And so Scotty gave this scientist the formula. Remember, he talks to the, the, it's the Apple Mac, and he talks to the mouse computer, and it doesn't work. So, funny scene if you're a geek. Um, anyhow, they get this formula for, for transparent aluminum. And, uh, and I just think, like, wouldn't it be really cool to, to be able to do something like that? To kind of, I don't know, go back in time and give them the formula for things? You know, how to do transistors and you know, computers like back in the 1700s or something like that. Or what if someone from the future came to us and said, here, I have this formula for, you know, free, clean energy. And you've got this formula and you know how to do it. And how would that transform our world? Right? Whatever, cold fusion maybe. They, they figured out cold fusion. It changes the world, wouldn't it? I mean, I, so, I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but I fantasize about things like that sometimes. Um, how much it would change things? Well, the message of the Gospel, the truth that we have and that we share, is more powerful than anything like that could ever be. More powerful than transparent aluminum, cold fusion, or any other formula or any other benefit you might bring to humanity because this message transforms lives and makes people that are frogs into princes and princesses, makes them immortal, makes them into the image of Christ. And when that message gets done being shared and God's people are throughout the world loving and witnessing, shining for Jesus, affecting all people groups throughout the world, when the work is done, Christ will come back and transform this world itself so the world will be made from a frog into a prince as well. In every way, heaven and earth will be joined together, will dwell with Him forever. So there's no more important or more powerful message or ministry than what we've been given. And brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, you are an ambassador of God Himself. And you've been given this message. The God Himself who rules over all creation. The most important one. Ambassadors in in our world are important people, aren't they? Because they represent the government or the, the kings and queens or whatever of their particular country. And so they're important, but we are ambassadors of God Himself. And we're unique ambassadors because actually we used to be enemies of the King. And now we're brought in. And we're made part of the Kingdom. 
And we experience His love and we experience this new life in Him and we experience the, having this message and this ministry and He uses us to bring great change in the world. I think just first off, this ought to amaze us that God would do this, that He would, he would recruit enemies, transform them, and then say, okay, I want you to go with this message. I want you to be my ambassador where you live. I want you to be my ambassador at work in your neighborhood in whatever way you're called to do that. I think at first you just fill us with amazement. Just, wow! I've been reconciled with Him. I belong to Him. I'm alive forever. I'm a new creation. He loves me with His amazing love. And I get to be part of what He's doing. Just to be amazed. But I think it also should propel us. Ambassadors that are present in a foreign country are there for a purpose. They don't just go like golf and jet ski and go to restaurants and enjoy the culture. They might enjoy all those things, but they're there primarily to represent the King. And you and I, brothers and sisters, certainly are put here to enjoy God's goodness in many ways, but we are here to represent the King. To share His love. And to bring this message that brings new life. And you might be the only ambassador your neighbor or friend will ever meet. You are that ambassador that God has sent. And you don't have to be a superstar. You don't have to be strong, right? That's the message of 2 Corinthians. You don't have to have it all together. You simply need to be able to point. Let me tell you about Him and what He's done for me. Let me tell you about how He helps me. Let me tell you about how I struggle with life. I'm just like you. Matter of fact, I'm probably worse. I have struggles. I'm weak. I deal with this or that thing. But I have Him. And that's all we have to do. So as we conclude, I just want you to think about how God wants to use you as an ambassador. I want you to, to realize and ground yourselves that it comes because He's loved you. You're controlled. You're to be controlled by Christ's love. It comes because you have new life in Christ. You're transformed. And it comes because He's given you His message and His ministry. So, uh, in a minute, we'll, I'll, I'll pray. and Maybe just take a minute to think about one person. What I'd like to encourage you to do is to, is to pray for that person. Find someone. Think of someone. Pray for them. And take a week. And I'd encourage you to, to actually grab an a uh, Alpha invitation. It's adult VBS. Um, we have, we're running the Alpha program starting September 12th. Just pray for that one person and then give them that invitation and trust God. And just point, hey, this has been really helpful for me. If you're interested, love to go with you. Actually, invite if, you know, if they're a close friend. Say, hey, I'll, I'll go with you. We'll check it out together. So just as a way of application. So um, let's just take a minute. Um, I'm going to pray. We'll take a minute and we'll transition to communion, um, to celebrate communion. But let's take a minute to, to ask the Lord, who might be that one person that you're empowering me and calling me to be an ambassador for? So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for... The, these truths in this wonderful passage, we thank You for the love of Christ that is to constrain us. We thank You for being new creations in You. We thank You for this amazing message and ministry of the Gospel of reconciliation You've given us. And now I pray You'd speak to us about ways we can be ambassadors for You. Use us, O Lord. We thank You. We're weak, but You're strong. Amen. Take a minute to pray together, and then we'll transition to communion.